0: Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. Today is yet another, oh man, I love these, conversation with a couple of practitioners that are using the SOM method in their clinic and they got questions. So today I've got two previous guests of the podcast. Laura Christensen, we talked to her about treating sciatica way back in episode 33. And recent guest, Sharon Weisenbaum, we were talking about stages and cycles of practice, episode number 70. These two women have been working with this OM system and they've got some really great clinically relevant questions because, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road is in the clinic. So Sharon, Laura, Toby, welcome everybody. I would like to begin um, with just having Sharon and Laura just tell us, a little bit about the kind of experience that you've had with this, um, how you've been able to integrate it into your practice, and just kind of give us a sense of um, how you find this method working its way into your clinical thinking.
1: I guess I could start. I think one of the key issues for me is that I have been uh, looking for a way to make my acupuncture practice simpler. And I had been doing a very elaborate kind of Japanese acupuncture that took a lot of testing and changing needles and testing and changing needles. And as I get older, running around and doing all that kind of busy stuff was getting tiring. And I also felt like I wanted something that was super powerful that could deal with both root and branch issues kind of in the same swoop. I was really drawn to the psalm right away. I have been messing around with it for a total of about three months now, and kind of clumsily, actually, making all kinds of mistakes and discoveries. And I have found that the patients really, really, really like it. Of course, every day that I work, I come up with more and more questions, and so uh, I'm, I'm eager to have more help in in applying this stuff.
0: Great. I just want to comment, Toby Daly, you've heard me say this is a great method for lazy acupuncturists. I think Laura just confirmed that. (laughs) I think it's a good uh, method for efficient acupuncturists. (laughs) Sharon, what about you?
2: Well, I'm trying to remember. Maybe you can help me, Michael. When was the first podcast with Toby?
0: I think it was back in... July-ish, number 45, I remember that.
2: Okay. Well, I think it was so back in July. For me, it was since hearing that podcast I and reading the article, I read the article then right away, what really struck me about the system and kind of got me excited about it was the integration of the six chi with the five elements. That just like, it was like one of those light bulb moments, like where all these things sort of fell into place for me. And I just thought, this is really cool. This is really, it just felt accurate. And so working with that idea, it just got me going. And I made a decision to treat everybody with some, you know, that I I wanted to learn it. And so I just said, this is what I'm doing with everybody. For however long that is, maybe six months, that's what I've been doing. And like Laura, I have had some really incredible results and also kind of feeling clumsy with it at times and making mistakes. And But each time it's been really such an opportunity to learn. It's very easy to learn with some acupuncture, you know, to try something and watch the effects, and then learn from that. Yeah, I have had a lot of questions. I've had a lot of questions answered, and I have still more as I continue to work with it.
0: Could you elaborate just a little bit? You said it's easy to learn, and I'm curious to know what about this and the way that you're working with it you makes it easy for you to learn from your clinical experience using it?
2: Well, I think it has to do with what Toby said in the first podcast where he said it's an all-in method. So, you know, if I'm kind of creating a, a point formula in a way that's working with various aspects of what's going on with somebody, I might not be able to know what a, this worked and what about it didn't work. When I give a treatment that's sort of, well, I'm going to treat heart, you know, and that's fire, fire. And then I get feedback like, did that work or did it not work? And if it didn't work, I know exactly what didn't work. And then I can think about why you know it's kind of like in herbal medicine if you give a kind of herb formula that covers all your bases just in case then if it doesn't work you can you don't really you don't know why but if you really aim for something you know and it works or it didn't work you know if you're all in with a treatment principle then you get that feedback so that's what I meant by it you know, feeling like I can learn more about Psalm by practicing Psalm.
0: It's a really good point. I I have found for myself, and I really have to rein myself back a lot of times because I'll look at a situation and go, "Oh, I could do this and this," and I'll and I'll rein myself back and I'll go choose one, and get that clarity that you're talking about. Go all in on that one thing. Don't muck it up or confuse it with something else. And then the feedback that we get is crystal clear. Super helpful.
1: I'm not so good at holding back from mucking it up.
0: (laughs) Well, Laura, would you like to start with a, uh, a case for us?
1: Sure. I actually have two cases today. One is kind of long and complicated, and the other one is rather short and simple. But I think I'll start with the complicated one. This is a lady who is about 62. She is a professional violinist, like the concert concert mistress of an orchestra. They're kind of a high-strung person. I've actually known her since about 1977. She's come to me on and off for a variety of things, but there are some themes in her story, and one of her themes is chronic gut issues. The other theme is uh, something like palpitations, So I hadn't seen her in a while. And she came back to see me recently, um, feeling quite urgent. And she came in with big black sunglasses. And it wasn't actually very bright out that day. And she said that she was experiencing problems with eating, that every time she ate, she was bloated, she was having reflux. And every time she ate, she got cold. She also said that she had burning eyes, burning skin, and that putting lotion was worsening her skin. And this is during the the week when it was 20 below zero here. She also was reporting photophobia and this dry burning in her eyes. And she said that her gums were aching and that she was thirsty all the time and just feeling dry all, all over. And so at that point... I felt like I I I had to kind of choose. And what I chose to address first was the digestive issue. Because I know that's been a very very chronic thing for her. So at that first visit I I did the tonification of spleen bilaterally because I was looking at dry 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 and you know her gut kind of just not working well. Things not moving along, bloating. So I did bilateral spleen. The next time I came, she reported no appetite and that she was burping, that she couldn't eat, um, but she was still having a dry mouth, dry eyes, dry nose. And she said that her heart rate was elevating way too much when she walks on the treadmill. She said it would go up to 90 and so, because I'm kind of stubborn, I did the spleen treatment again bilaterally. The next time she came, she said her dry mouth was much better and that she was less light sensitive. Her skin wasn't quite so dry and irritated, but now she says that, oh, and that her appetite is good, but now she says that, and her heart rate isn't elevating as much, but she had a heart, a headache and she was feeling very shaky. So this time I just did a little bit of spleen. I I tonified spleen on one side only. And okay, that was fine. So it looks like I did another spleen treatment after that. And then she came back and said that she was having episodes in the night where her heart rate would race. And she would wake up very, very thirsty several times in the middle of the night. And feeling like she has to drink water all the time. And she actually um, went and got a a halter monitor to monitor her heart rate for a few days. And they found episodes of heart rate up to 180 intermittently over, I don't know, 24, 48 hours. Um, But her digestion was better. But now she was constipated. So she was able to eat. But she was actually, she reported goat stool, the little pellet stools and still very thirsty. And these episodes of rapid heart rate in the middle of the night accompanied by extreme thirst and sort of anxiety. So at this point, I figured that we had shifted from a spleen presentation pretty clearly to something else. (laughs) I had to decide which pattern would be the best one. And my first guess was that we needed to support kidney. Because she said that she was feeling very, very cold at the same time as having these racing heart episodes. And I found that, that those contrasting patterns were kind of confusing. You know, one of the things about SOM that is a little bit tricky is that sometimes those eight principal herbal diagnostic ideas that we have, like blood stagnation, deficient kidney yin those things are not always obvious in to me anyway in these these 12 patterns so that's where i i end up kind of <laughs> experimenting basically so i did a kidney tonification treatment on one side and it helped her to not feel so cold but she was still feeling very very dry and complaining about this heart racing So finally, I put her in the category of uh, liver, deficiency of liver. And that time, I gave her a one-sided liver treatment, and she really calmed down. She fell deeply asleep during the treatment, and she felt very, very happy about that. (laughs) But then... The next treatment, she came back and now increased gas and burping after eating, up all night, all off and on with heart racing and constipation. And so it seems like I started to see her as kind of more of a deficient liver blood pattern. And it felt like the liver was the right thing. But then when I did that, then some of these gut symptoms Showed back up, so this sort of brings me to one of the questions, which is that when we're treating people in an ongoing way like this, it seems like they can swing back and forth between patterns, or maybe like different patterns get uncovered or present more up front from time to time. What do you think, Toby?
3: It sounds like clinical reality. It sounds like you've been uh, dealing with clinical reality. Yeah, so you just always have to treat what you see, and then you always have to prioritize root or branch, right? So that's that's always difficult to do. I was thinking about with your case, though. did you ever consider supplementing urinary bladder?
1: I did not because she had been reporting feeling cold after eating, but I think that that makes a lot of sense.
3: Especially with the racing heart, you know, that could counterbalance that and all the dry symptoms. I think that, that's, that would be a reasonable... Uh, Way to approach that case.
1: Well, and in the, the question about dryness, you know, it seems like you could go at this through the, the kind of uh, fluid management that is accomplished by the, the lung, spleen, stomach, large intestine group, or you can address it through sort of bladder, kidney, something like that. And I found it a little bit tricky to decide how to address that. Which, which of those groups to choose?
3: Right. But that's what I'm saying. I think based on what you presented, I think supplementing urinary bladder would be the best. It would be able to hit the main things that you're, you're seeing, aside from the cold after eating. Um, it's just mostly you know, heat. Yeah, mostly heat and mostly dry. So remember, supplementing urinary bladder is very cold and very moistening. So between those two things, I think you'd take care of a lot of things. And a lot of times, too, if you can hit the exactly right channel, then everything else will get taken care of, um, like that cold after eating. You know, if you really give the body what it needs, it sounds like she's deeply deficient in the urinary bladder uh, organ system. So if you can give her that, then everything else will get better, too. So she, you know, the secondary symptoms a lot of times can get alleviated.
1: Well, that's perfect. Thanks.
3: Good luck with that, uh, that it, it is a complicated case, but um, yeah, anyway, it seems like that might be the deepest deficiency that she has is in the urinary bladder.
1: Yeah, and I think that that idea that when you intervene in one of those places, that the intervention does move through the 12, it affects everything else, but, but yeah, you have to sometimes experiment to see which pattern is going to move the other ones the most, and I don't always go to urinary bladder. I don't think of it very often.
0: I get nervous around urinary bladder. I mean, anytime there's like a double something, I, I'm always like double checking.
3: Right. I think I think that's good to be really cautious, but especially like the the case that Laura presented. I mean, it, it almost is textbook heart excess with with a racing heart, uh, all the heat signs, all the dry signs. You know, so uh, you, yeah, you should be cautious, but. Definitely, if, if it presents really clearly, then, then you should have a little bit of courage to introduce it. And then again, remember, we've we discussed this so many times, though, so especially when you do uh, supplement heart or supplement urinary bladder or anything else, like supplementing gallbladder, I'm also very cautious about. Just really watch that patient for a couple of minutes after needling, and then you'll know right away uh, if you know, you're getting some false signs, you didn't make a good diagnosis, the patient will be very agitated or the patient will be very, very calm and very, very happy that, that, you know, they're really, really hungering for something and you've given it to them. So, uh, you know, that that's a pretty unmistakable
0: clinical reaction. That's a good point. I, I actually had a person yesterday. I thought she needed urinary bladder. She's got all kinds of digestive issues, very sensitive abdomen. And I Tonified urinary bladder, went and checked her belly, and it it had gone from like okay ish to drum tight. It's like, oops, okay, pull it out, do something else. Yeah, so just, you know, case in point, Toby, I, I don't know why I need reminding of this all the time, but you're right that within moments, tongue, pulse, abdomen, overall effect of the patient, there's so many ways we have of getting a sense, did we get it or did we not?
1: Yeah, and in in a case like the one that I presented, one of the kind of red herring symptoms at the very first visit was this extreme photophobia. And so, you know, I was thinking, san jiao, is this excess san jiao? Or, you know, going back to eight principles, is this like a liver kind of yang rising scenario? And so I think sometimes there are symptoms like that that sort of stand out and we have to really resist being pulled in, into some wrong thinking.
3: Yeah. But I mean, eventually you did come around to supplementing liver. And I I think that is a good idea, especially with a photophobia and, and she did feel much better. So I think going in the right direction of, you know, ultimately you needed to go to cold with urinary bladder by going to cool with liver, uh, you know, that's, that's getting in the
0: ballpark. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Sharon, have you got something for us here?
2: I do. I just want to say that was really a helpful discussion for me. I hadn't really thought of the bladder as moistening, and that makes so much sense. So thank you for that. So I have a question. Sharon, can
3: I say something real quick? Yeah. I meant to say that when I was talking to uh, Laura about it, but yeah, so my teacher says that uh, supplementing urinary bladder is like dumping ice-cold water on the patient.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's wet wet and cold.
3: Yes, it, it's uh, tayong and water.
2: So I just got back from a meditation retreat, and during the retreat we did some exercises where we painted, we did like listening in and listening out and seeing in and seeing out and feeling in and feeling out. Um, It was very interesting to watch how things change depending on the change in the focus. And that, that brought up a question for me, for Toby, which is when you're actually needling somebody, where do you put your attention? What's the quality and location of your attention?
3: In a perfect sense or what I really do? Both. Okay. In a perfect sense, I remember reading at some point that your mind should be at the tip of the needle. In a perfect sense, that's what I'm doing. I think most of the time I'm thinking of something else and distracted by something else. But if possible, I try to put my attention at the tip of the needle.
2: Is it a very focused kind of attention or is it kind of loose Ideally?
3: I I practice a lot of concentration meditation, so it's pretty focused if I can do it.
2: Okay, thank you. So I understand this kind of continuum from spleen being damp, damp, to large intestine being the dry metal, and then in between there's sort of the damp, dry of the lungs and the dry, damp of the stomach, and sort of the idea that the lung and the stomach are sort of opposite mirror images of each other. But when I think about the heart being fire, fire, and the bladder being cold water, and then the two that are in the middle of that, which is small intestine and kidney, both being fire and water or fire and cold respectively. Um I feel like I don't understand that quite as well. And, you know, so I understand the the moisture of the small intestine, the way that it can nourish the blood, but then the warmth can also really move the blood. And that the combination of the fire and cold water how that relates to the blood, but the the kidney, I'm not really clear on how it relates to the fire and water. Like what are the qualities of kidney that are really about fire and water? I'm wondering if you could speak to that.
3: So that that took uh, me a really long time to really understand. I spent a lot of time talking with my teacher about that. But so small intestine and kidney are both fire and water, but uh, yin fire and water for small intestine uh, excuse me, yang fire and water for small intestine and yin fire and water for kidney. So the the difference between them is the consolidation aspect. So since it's yin, uh, the kidney, then it's consolidated fire and water. So the image for um, the kidney is gasoline that's been lit on fire, that's been like smooshed down to a small sphere. So I think, although my, my teacher wouldn't explicitly say this, I think this is like the yin and yang of the kidney, you know, the fire and water aspects of the kidney, our inheritance, our jing. Anyways, you're right, it's confusing fire and water aspect, but so just think consolidation or dispersing.
2: You're saying that being yin, the kidney is a consolidated fire and water, so tonifying kidney then helps us consolidate our fire and water? Is that what you're saying, that we're bringing in that Quality,
3: Yeah, a little bit, but mostly it helps us supplement the fire and water that is consolidated.
2: So increasing the amount of the consolidated fire and water. Yes. Yes. I was wondering if you could give me a clinical example. Infertility. So if somebody comes to you for fertility, that treating kidney, tonifying kidney might be be uh something that would be definitely on your plate of of good options.
3: Yes, be, because uh that that's the jing, right? So that that's the deepest possible cause for infertility is kidney deficiency, the inability to create another life even to sustain your own. You know, if it's if your kidney is really low in the system then your vitality your sexual vitality your ability to reproduce that's that's really diminished so of course there'd be you know tons of other secondary factors for infertility but for infertility cases immediately i i go to look at assess how the kidneys doing
2: so if you're treating somebody over time you might if they're very damp you might treat spleen in some session but then also be integrating kidney in your array. So it wouldn't be just treat kidney over and over again for fertility patients, it would sort of take the whole picture into account.
3: Yeah, 100%. Part of the system, too, we, we have to be careful, too, because it's, it's so powerful, like we were talking about before going all in. We can't just keep hammering at the body with the same idea. So we have to switch it around. Maybe two, maybe three treatments that are the same or similar, and then you've got to switch around and look at some secondary things to clean those up. And then you could always go back to the channels you're using. But, but, but yeah, please try not to just keep hammering the same thing.
2: Any other examples you could give that we were- kidney like increasing that amount of the consolidated yin and yang that comes up a lot
3: for suicidal patients i always think about supplementing kidney
0: toby would you consider the kidney for people who have maybe been through a course of chemotherapy or have either, you know they're in the process of recovering from some long illness and they're very very depleted
3: yeah anything that that damages their jing I consider kidney.
2: How would you recognize damaged Jing? That seems like a a term that could have lots of meanings, and I realize I'm not really sure what you mean by damaged Jing. Like how does that show up with like the bones becoming weak, the teeth becoming weak, the sexual energy becoming weak?
3: Yes the face has become sunken, the eyes have become really dark under the eyes, you know, just really depleted people. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe a high-minded concept, but definitely when you see it in clinic, you know it, uh, gene deficiency, especially say you saw a patient and they were, you know, semi-vital, everything was going pretty well. They go for a few rounds of chemotherapy and then you see them six months later and they are just exhausted. Face is sunken, dark eyes, reporting just no energy, no sexual energy, things like that, then then I consider that, you know, jing uh, damage.
2: Would you also think of that for people who have like a B syndrome, like rheumatoid arthritis type of B syndrome where their bones are really being affected or like ankylosing spondylitis kind of thing? Would you consider that a kind of jing level if it's deteriorating or deforming the bones?
3: Definitely. Um, part of this diagnosis for this too is um, to assess if the kidney is nice and strong is how are the bones, How what the quality of the bones, and how symmetrical and uh, how beautiful the bone structure is in the body. So that, that's a part of assessing the kidney also. So, yeah, any kind of bone problem for sure, um, then you can consider some kind of kidney problem. I'd be a little bit careful going just completely with kidney, because especially with some types of arthritis and things like that, you would want to kind of move things a little bit. So maybe you could supplement kidney a little bit and then go ahead and supplement small intestine at some point to move. Uh, So it may be a a case where you'd have to consolidate, you know, a combination of consolidating and moving.
2: Or if they're very cold, you might want to include heart sometime. For sure. Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you. I think I get it now. Yeah,
0: <laughs> great, Laura. You said you had a uh, simple case.
1: Oh yeah, this
2: is
0: Toby. Toby likes the easy questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually, Michael, have don't pl- tell my secrets. <laughs> I have plenty of complicated cases, but I I thought we could talk about the kind of
3: sorry, Laura. Oh, we don't have time rel- for complicated cases. So uh, <laughs> the maybe relatively,
1: next time. Co- the relatively straightforward sort of cases that often walk in the acupuncture clinic in my practice. Somehow I've gotten the reputation of being a pain specialist, which I suppose is not rare for a lot of us. I was treating a woman just recently who is, well, I've been treating her for 25 years. She's a very good friend. And um, she seems to have developed arthritis in her hip joint. And at first it seemed like bursitis, but after a couple of treatments, now it's very clear that it's in the joint. And I remember Toby at one point said to me, "You have to think about what person has this symptom." You know, I'm always tempted in clinic to just uh, make things as simple as possible, and because I'm lazy, just like Michael said. <laughs> and efficient. So this this woman, if if I were to just want to treat something like hip joint arthritis without respect to everything else. I mean, how do we, is there a way of doing that? Or So, you know, we think about hip joint arthritis, usually pain is either in the front of the hip or in the back. So Shaoyang, gallbladder, meridian, or perhaps, well, if it's in the front, it could be liver or stomach. But at some point along the way, I thought I heard that if you have pain along a meridian, that you treat the opposite side of the body and treat the complementary meridian. Did I get that right?
3: Uh, you heard that uh, from this system or another system?
1: No, I I, I think I heard it from Michael. <laughs>
3: okay. No, I think Michael was was telling you yes. Yeah, so for this system, we 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 really rely on uh, Suwen chapter five about when there's you know a problem on the yang we pull from the yin, a problem on the yin we pull from the yang. So yeah, we do do counterbalancing treatments. So say um, someone has hip pain on the right side, then we would needle on the left. For sure, for for the system, we take into uh, account, let's say for for your case, let's say it's along the gallbladder channel. Um, So then we would try and decide this person that has pain along the gallbladder channel, are they more like Mike Tyson or are they more like a librarian? And then we would treat based on that. So that's just looking at just the channel problem. Also, we have to take into account too, so that's the channel, but also let's say the patient's freezing cold and still the pain is along the gallbladder channel, but really, I mean they're out of control cold, then you would ignore the channel and supplement heart because that's the quality of the person. And uh like we, we started this discussion before, right? Remember the 12 channels are like one big ring. And each channel is a section of that ring. So if one part of it's really off, like they're really, really cold, and you can fix that, then the rest of the ring will be much stronger and much better. So it's possible if you supplement a heart and then that hip pain is just resolved. That's fantastic. Otherwise, you'll get a, nut, a much better effect when you take, when you supplement pericardium or gallbladder, maybe the next visit. You'll be get much more purchase from that treatment If you've already taken care of a lot of that cold, then everything will function much better.
1: well, that's very helpful. And interestingly, I do find that people's pain often shows up in a meridian either that is the kind of the same as the the channel that seems to be in a state of excess or in the complementary to their constitutional pattern. It's kind of interesting. Does that seem to be the case, Toby? Uh,
3: I, I don't quite understand that question.
1: Like if somebody is a Mike Tyson person, they tend to get pain along the gallbladder channel or the pericardium. Yes.
3: Yes, for sure. But yeah. not always. That, that's why uh, you just always have to, you just always have to diagnose, right? And the, and the downside is you just always have to diagnose. But yeah, for, for sure. I mean, that that that's where these archetypes come from, right, is all the combinations, the personality combinations and the channel combinations and the organ combinations. And they tend to show up over and over again. That's the cool thing about this system, too, is it just seems to capture so much clinical reality. That's why I really like it.
1: Yeah, and that actually kind of brings me to another question is, and and perhaps you've already said it, but maybe you could say it in another way, is that the idea of, addressing both root and branch with such a simple combination of four points, I think is a little bit challenging to a lot of us who have been in practice for a long time, because, you know, we put in our four points and then we kind of want to do some local needling. And I find it hard to trust that that primary channel is going to address the branch so do, do you find that it, it often does that pretty well? Yes. Okay, you have to say that to me 10 times more.
3: <laughs> no, no, but, but it's, it's like the concept we said before, if you can find out the deepest problem that the patient has and supplement that, then a lot of secondary things go away because the, the overall 12 channels are much better now.
1: Yeah, and I think in subsequent treatments, we do see the, the symptom list kind of decreasing or narrowing you know, narrowing and becoming more clear, which is extremely Ideally, often. yes. Yeah, it's so, it's so amazing to watch that happen. And uh, oftentimes my patients have to be reminded of all the things that have disappeared. But that also brings me to the next layer of my questions, which is, so how long do we expect to have to treat people? I mean, I know that's not really a very clear question, but... You know, when I'm talking to patients about what to expect, what is the best thing to say?
3: Uh, I'm going to steal from one of my other teachers, uh, Angela Wu from San Francisco. She says, uh, be open to the possibility that all this is gone. Wow. Be open to the possibility that all these symptoms will be gone.
1: Well, that's planting a very good seed. But why yeah, not? Yeah, but it's not, you're
3: not <laughs> promising anything. You're not limiting anything. I, I just, English was her second language. And my teacher, uh, Dr. Wu, she she uses English languages so beautifully. So she just loved to get their precise words for that. Be open to the possibility that all these symptoms are gone. Uh, that's just a perfect uh, frame of mind for the patient. If they can embody that, then, I mean, you're like halfway to cure that way.
1: Typically, when people first start coming to see me, I have them come once a week. I've never been a twice-a-week person largely because of scheduling issues for patients. What is your treatment frequency recommendation, Toby?
3: Super case-by-case. Remember, this is a monastic tradition, and they don't want to have a whole bunch of patients. They want to resolve the problems and then get back to their monastic duties. So a lot of times I don't see patients very long. I, I try and resolve things as quickly as possible when i see a new patient i have them i don't schedule many follow up appointments i have them uh, phone back after 2 days i figure after 2 days with the system you know whatever my treatment ideas well i'll have a lot of uh, good clinical information to decide what to do from there so based on the response to the initial visit then i make a plan after that
2: so Toby, i want to clarify going back to the hip pain so if the hip pain is on the right and you then decide they're Mike Tyson or a librarian, would you tonify the gallbladder pericardium on the left? Yes. Okay. And if they were very, very cold with right side hip pain, then would you treat on the right for a woman and on the left for a man?
3: It depends upon how severe the pain is. So a lot of times I would treat on the counter side of pain too. So even though it's not the right...
2: Kind of just in general.
3: Yeah, even if it's not the right channel, if it's not matching the right channel, I still want to just infuse that side with something. There's sort of like some loose rules. And then wherever there's like a whole bunch of weight, like extreme pain, then I would always go to the opposite side. It's light pain and it's a female... I don't you know then maybe I might supplement the right or maybe the left and then a lot of times I do take both sides at the same time so then that that's another factor to think about but but extreme things I try and that that goes to the top of my list so extreme pain you know, I go to the opposite side
2: what do you think about symptoms that change in relation to barometric pressure changes like headaches You know, I know the rain is coming because I always get a headache. Is there anything that comes to mind with those kinds of symptoms?
3: I'm not sure. I mean, I I think whatever the pressure change, whatever climate is being invited with that change, I think I would really look at that. You know, the the system, it's a 400-year-old system, so no barometers, right? So I don't know. I, I think I would just look at the climate, whatever climate's being invited with that.
2: So if a big wet rainstorm is coming, you might think about dampness, but also look at that in the context of what else they're presenting. Definitely. You know, I had a Japanese teacher say once that, you know, you do the root treatment and, you know, he didn't even leave needles in. And so it takes, you know, just a few minutes, you give the root treatment. And he said, and then I do all this other stuff just so that the patient can feel like I... They got their money's worth, kind of. Do you ever add things like that to your treatment to sort of fluff it out? Um you know, a back rub or, <laughs> you know, contact needling or... sha.
3: <laughs> no, uh, I got really busy. Uh, so I just didn't have time. Uh, so a lot of times I, yeah, I routinely see 20 plus patients a day. So there's no time for back rub or anything like that. I, I understand what you're saying. That is a really nice thing to do. But patients ultimately, they want clinical results. So they can get powerful quick clinical results, then they don't really care if, if you just spend a few minutes with them, only put in four needles. Sometimes I only put in two. My teacher uh, occasionally, he saw one case, we only put in one needle. It was amazing, right? And just amazing clinical results. So I think the clinical results is really the key. That's what the patients are there for. So if you can give them, you know, amazing clinical results then and, and no back rub, I think it's much better than poor clinical results and, you know, elaborate back rub.
1: Well, and that reminds me of something that you said, which was that when you start adding other points, that it actually can sort of decrease the power of the sum combination.
3: Yeah. There's so much power in those four points. So anything outside that, you're, you're, really, you're, you're really only going to detract from it.
0: You kind of dilute it. You know, yeah. this brings to mind for me something we were talking about a little bit earlier about, really, I can use just four needles? especially those of us that have been in practice for any length of time, especially if our patients have gotten used to a certain amount of attention from us, we do four needles, one side, they're like, Hey, whoa, you know, like sometimes my patients will say, is that it? But more often I'm saying to myself, I wonder if they're going to feel like they got enough. And so it's really me and my own lack of confidence that this is really gonna do the trick. Like Toby says, and I think this is true, they're looking for clinical results. If it comes out of four needles, great. If it comes out of 10 needles, fine. But it, in many ways it's our own attitude about do I feel like I gave them their money's worth that can really get in the way of standing in that place of inquiry. Wow, let's see how this simplicity works.
1: Or Or just not trusting the acupuncture
0: right and like like Sharon says, it's an easy system to learn because you do one thing very clearly and then you have an unmuddled result to pay attention to and then either continue with or course correct from so simpler is gooder.
2: I had a person who kind of complained be- because my My diagnosis felt very clear and came very quickly. She got great results, but then complained that I hadn't spent enough time, even though the results were really good. But I suppose um, that could also be considered part of the
1: diagnosis for the next treatment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) That's a great point, Sharon.
1: We actually had to change the schedule of the clinic. Because my visits used to be an hour and 15 minutes, and now they're like 45 minutes. So now we have time for a lunch break and maybe to take a walk in the middle of the day. You know, my receptionists have had to adapt, and it's it's actually been really great that way.
2: So, Toby, I have another question. Do you have any insights, particular insights, about the treatment of insomnia with some? Is the, and is there anything you might add to the four needles or can it be a whole variety of possibilities?
3: There's a whole variety of possibilities, definitely. But uh, mostly I, I go to supplement pericardium uh, straight away. That, that's the first thing I think about for, um, for insomnia. When you think about uh, Mike Tyson, right? I don't know how, what his sleeping habits are, but I imagine they're horrible. I imagine he's just uh, nightmares and can't sleep and and flipping around and everything like that. And I imagine a librarian just goes to bed at 8 p.m., right?
2: And takes naps all during the day.
3: (laughs) So that's definitely consider supplementing pericardium uh, for insomnia. And then, of course, everything else could play into that. I did see one patient. They, I forget what the medical condition was, but they weren't, they couldn't sleep for two days, no sleep, and they were really in bad shape. So um, I did, you know, I just kind of trusted and just did simple pericardium, just four points to supplement. And when I came back, she was asleep on the table. So that really uh, hammered home for me that, yes, pericardium is a really good idea for insomnia.
2: What about if people are on sleeping medications and they want to get off the medications but they're very habituated to them and kind of afraid not to take them?
3: Those medications are just covering up whatever their inability to sleep. So I think you know theoretically if it is coming from pericardium deficiency which almost everybody in this country has i think by supplementing pericardium and then they they slowly wean off them i think that might be nice because you can give them what they actually need while you're you're taking the medication off
2: so it can make it easier for them to to get off the medication when their body is getting what it needs
3: yeah i think i think so th- you know theoretically i think so
0: i want to bring up one other thing about sleep medication I hear this a lot from my patients that they are terrified of not taking it. I mean, the amount of fear they have around not taking that pill is profound. Sometimes as they're weaning off, they'll just make sure that the pill is on their nightstand, right, just because they just don't want to be too far away from it. So when I think of the pericardium, yes, we're looking to calm, but, you know, because it's partially warm, <laughs> and because it does have that connection to the heart, I would think it would also help with that sense of fear in terms of, of, of not having that medication. Sometimes I think I should tonify the heart, but I worry about putting too much fire into a system that's, that's not sleeping well already. So it seems like pericardium is a good midway for that.
3: Yeah, I think yeah, pericardium is pretty safe. And like I said, almost everybody in this country, I think, could use some pericardium. Like like we were just saying before, yeah, About for insomnia, then I would consider pericardium. But if the insomnia is coming from fear or really fear-based, then consider supplementing heart. If you think heart's too hot, you could always encase it. Uh, you could do supplement heart and then supplement liver at the same time. That's a nice way of taking the heat, the really extreme heat, out of the heart by counterbalancing that with supplementing liver at the same time. So that's a really nice combination.
1: Can I share a case?
0: That's why we're here.
1: This is a a 92 year old lady who called because she was having what she called a fuzzy head. And she wanted to know if I could help her with that. So when she came in, she told this fascinating story that, her children had taken her on a boat ride on the Mississippi River on a very hot day for several hours and a hot, sunny, pretty dry day. I think it was in early September. And that ever since then, she felt that her head was not clear and that she felt increasingly dizzy, that her memory wasn't working as well as she'd like, you know, she couldn't recall words and things. And I found it so fascinating because, you know, here she told the story that to me sounded exactly like a San Jiao excess. Like she was out there and the sun just kind of was too much. Like almost like sunstroke. But this condition had persisted for several months. And because now it's February. At the first visit that I worked with her, I just did the simplest four-needles tonify liver, and she had an amazing recovery from that. As I took her case further, I learned that she had actually suffered from sensitivity to light and sort of feeling hot when everybody else is not, and, you know, dry skin, and I've known her since I was a child, and I remember that she was always obsessed with making everybody comfortable, always buzzing around, being the perfect hostess. And I, I had not ever seen such a very clear Sanjiao excess before. And uh, it was really interesting, especially in a 92-year-old lady, where I think I, I might have expected something more along a you know, kidney deficiency type of picture. So, d- does that sound like I got that one right, Toby?
3: Well, yeah. Um, clinic really answered that for you, right? She had an amazing clinical result. So, you, you definitely got that right. But, yeah, it seems almost like a textbook uh, way of doing that. A patient that's really socially aware of their whole life and uh, really Sanjo accessed in that way, and then exposed to extreme bright light and heat, and then they start having symptoms. So, Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a textbook case. So that's great. And then, you know, not all textbook cases work out as well as this one did, but that's great. So textbook case, you do the textbook points and, um, and you get good results. So that's great.
1: And the thing again, is that there were a couple of red herrings in her story, or I call them red herrings, but I realize they're not, they're actually just symptoms along the circle of 12 that, you know, have kind of showed up and her, her report at her first visit was that her thinking was cloudy and fuzzy and muddled. So, you know, when I first heard those words, I started to think of that kind of damp um, obscuring the Shen pattern that we are so familiar with. But then when the story of bright light damage came along, I had to really stop and think again And not get sucked in by her terminology. And uh, so for me, that was a really good learning about how, um, you know, we just have to stay so, so literal with this stuff and not let that TCM stuff creep in.
3: That's one of our questions is, right, what was happening when this first came on, right? It always gives us such good clues. So I'm glad you keyed into that.
1: Yeah. And I saw her again yesterday. And uh, I, I, I made up a new question for these people, which is, would you rather go to the desert or to a cool pine forest?
3: Ooh, good.
1: And I know in the past you had said rainforest, but sometimes the rainforest is kind of hot and muggy.
3: Oh, I, w- I was saying before in Seattle, I went to the Ho Rainforest, which is never hot, I think, and always just wet and cool, dark, dense.
1: Ah, that's good. Yes. Yeah,
3: the different kind of rainforest.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, or, or a grove of redwoods.
3: Yes, that, that's where my teacher first taught me this, was in a grove of redwoods with the mist coming all through it. Uh, r- dark, uh, heavy, uh, ferns, everything is just really wet. And you, you, you kind of talk and it, it takes away your voice. It's so dense and so thick. And uh, my teacher, you know, we're walking and, that, and my teacher turns to me and goes, liver excess. <laughs> and so so once you recognize that on the outside, then it, it's it's something about that it makes it easier to recognize in our patients.
1: Yeah, and it's it's nice to have some simple questions that we can ask patients to help clarify these patterns. Like I think you had one where you said, would your friends call you, you know, this or that? It's very helpful to me.
0: Yeah. For me too. Laura, I had one very similar to that this was a, a patient and I did think that she really had a Sanjah excess. So I use that question, would your friends say you're focused? And she said, Oh yeah, my friends would say I am. And I said, what about you? Would you say you are? And she goes, no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> so she had a very different opinion of herself, which really throws me on the horns of a dilemma there. Do you treat what you think, It is because you're looking at it from the outside and other people are looking at it from the outside. Or do you treat how they see who they are? That sometimes can get a little bit confusing. But certainly, as with so often in this treatment, if you didn't diagnose it correctly, you'll know pretty quickly. And and you just reverse it.
3: My teacher felt like if if you absolutely believed it, then uh, you should treat that, even if there wasn't a manifestation for that. Um, I remember this case really clearly that part of um, the diagnosis for pericardium uh, excess is there's there's some kind of intelligence there, the librarian energy. We were treating a patient that was pretty clearly not intelligent, but believed in his heart of his hearts that he was very intelligent. And so my teacher would he did actually treat that. He did actually supplement that gallbladder for that patient, and everything worked out great. So, like if your friends casually, if they're saying, Oh, my friends really think I'm, uh, you know, really aware and everything's going great, but I don't really think too much of myself that I'm, I'm not, that, that's different. But if, if the, in the heart of their hearts they really believe something, then that's good enough for this system.
0: So, you've really got to use your uh, sort of emotional sensing to make those decisions all the time. Any other questions or points to bring up before we start to wind this thing down?
2: There's probably too many questions for me to <laughs> even begin to continue.
1: <laughs> I think I'll, everything on my list has been done, yeah. Uh,
3: like we always say, to uh, uh, patients are our best teachers, right? So uh, you, I'm sure you all have more questions clinical questions, and then the patients will, the clinical results will answer them for you.
0: Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you for your time. I I love listening into these conversations. I just, I learned so much from other people's inquiry into this stuff.
3: Yes. And and thank you so much, everyone, their interest in the the system. It's so pleasing to see so many people getting good clinical results with it. Um, It makes me really happy.
2: Thanks,
1: Toby, for bringing it to us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. such a gift.
3: My pleasure.
0: Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological